This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I am your host, Simon Wimes here, one of my writers, in this case, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Has written me a script, The Boston Strangler, Serial Murder, Solved or Unsolved. Uh, I guess a bit of a mystery in today's episode. The reason I'm guessing is, if you're new here, the format of this show is I've never read this script before. We've got... Oh, this is a relatively short one. That's a nice break. I kind of sit down with Casual Criminalist, expecting you to be ultra-long. This is only, what, 14 pages. That's not too bad. That's not too bad. Although everyone's probably at home, Simon. I like the long episodes. I like your company, Simon. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. I do like the long ones as well. What are we talking about? Let's just carry on. Pack your bags, ladies and gents. We're headed to Boston. I've been to Boston. It was I, I was there for like, I think, two days, one day. Did I even have an overnight in Boston? I think I was just trapped pa- passing through. But I did go and explore. It was nice. Nice little, I say little town. Nice little town. Like it's a turn of phrase, but obviously Boston is a large city. One of my favorite TV shows was uh, set there. Boston Legal, clearly from the title. I'm sorry, we're here for crime. Let's carry on. Arguably one of the most famous cities in the United States, its relevance dates all the way back to the Revolutionary War, including the Boston Tea Party. Sorry for the sore reminder, Simon, but our ancestors were rather uppity. Boston boasts a diverse population of 645,776. Population numbers are so precise. It's like, really? Can you really be that precise? Shouldn't you just say, like, around 650,000? I know there's a census and stuff, but are they asking, like, you know, homeless John? Is he filling out a census form? Because he feels like he'd be part of the population. So how can he be so precise? The vast majority of which are descended from Irish immigrants is also home to renowned universities such as Harvard and MIT, and the city is considered to be a global pioneer in innovation and entrepreneurship. Yeah, Boston has an unreasonable number of, like, famous uni- Isn't Princeton also in Boston? I gotta look that up. I feel like it is, but it could be horribly wrong. <laughs> Simon Princeton's in California, and I'm like, I don't think so. Oh, it's in New Jersey. That's not in Boston, is it? <laughs> New Jersey is like near New York. My bad. Moving on. Isn't there another famous... There's Harvard, MIT. There's Boston University. I feel like there's another super famous one. Oh, and of course, our good friend and fellow scriptwriter Kevin resides in Massachusetts, so it only feels right to give a bit of a nod here. Yeah, Kevin, also writer on Casual Criminalist, occasionally lives in Massachusetts. However, we aren't here to visit friends or to discuss the pleasant history of such a fine city. No, today we're here to discuss one of the darkest chapters in the city of Boston's history. Between June 1962 in January 1964, a total of 13 women were strangled in their homes. At the same time, a number of other crimes were starting to stack up, eventually leading to the apprehension of a suspect. While in custody, the suspect confessed to all the murders, blowing the case wide open. I get the feeling because there's a, like, solved or unsolved question mark in the title today. This is going to be one of those ones where it's like, there's a confession. And it's like, how was that confession? Well, there was a guy, and he was a little bit dim, and they brought him in, and the police were like, you better confess or you're going to get the chair. And he was like, okay. And then he retracts it later, and there's a whole mess, which just always brings me to the biggest reminder ever of casual criminalist, always get a lawyer. Lawyer, 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 lawyer. Always, always. Even if you're innocent, always. They'll give you one for free. Never turn down anything that's free. 
Unless it's someone giving you a ride home in Boston in 1963. He went to trial, he was convicted, and he spent the rest of his life in prison. But did he actually do it? From the moment the suspect confessed all the way to the present day, the validity of his confession, and if the police truly got their killer, has been in question. As we enter into the darkness once again, it falls on us today to try and find the truth. Was he actually brought to justice, or did the real killer slip through the cracks as someone else took the rap for his evil deeds? It's one of the biggest crime mysteries in the United States, and it's been the subject of controversy and conspiracy for over 50 years. This is the tale, and potentially the unsolved mystery of the Boston Strangler. That was a dramatic intro. I mean, other than the bit about, like, today it's the history of Boston and its precise numbers. But, like, that last line, mwah, well done, Matt. The Silk Stocking Murders It all began on June the 14th, 1962, at 77 Gainsborough Street in Boston. That day, 55-year-old seamstress Anna Slezers was alone in her apartment getting ready for a church service that night. She had finished baking muffins and was running a bath when it all came to an end. At 7.45pm, her 25-year-old son arrived to drive her to the service. Entering the apartment, he noticed that the door was unlocked, and he found her lying lifeless on the kitchen floor next to the bathroom. Her own bathrobe tie wrapped around her neck in what was identified, both ironically and horrifyingly, as a granny knot. Oh, God. Dude, that is grim. <laughs> Believing she had hanged herself, he called the police, who quickly determined that this was a murder. Along with the fresh muffins and the full bathtub indicating that she'd clearly planned to go out, many who take their own life attempt to make themselves look as presentable as they can, wishing to be seen put together when they end it all. Oh yeah, that's true. Like, whenever you see someone hang themselves in a movie, they're always, like, dressed up. They're always, like, wearing a suit or whatever. And it's like, okay. <laughs> I mean, I get it. I get it. You would, wouldn't you? Why would... <laughs> I don't know, but it's like, yeah, I agree. God, it's such a dark thought. It's like, yeah, if I was going to hang myself, I'd definitely put a suit on. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Simon, why do you think this? It's such a dark thought. Anna was anything but put together, clad only in a bathrobe, which she was open and nearly falling out of when she was found. This was a murder, pure and simple, and it wouldn't be the last. Although hanging would not be how I'd choose. <laughs> Now I'm just thinking, it's like, I remember once when I was uh, a student, like I do these, I've talked about it before, but do these medical trials where you test experimental drugs and they pay you like way more than you could get like working at McDonald's or whatever. And I'd, I'd do like, I'd do those things and it'd be like, I'd be in hospital for like two weeks. And then it'd be like, cool, I got like six months living, let's go. And although living was cheap, I'd usually just go travel somewhere and explore the world. I'm sure it's not the reason that my body's destroyed. And my body's not destroyed. It's fine. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. But get back to the point, which I don't remember what it was. Oh, yeah, about like suicide. <laughs> and they're like, they, they sometimes take you on and they'd always ask you, do you ever contemplate suicide? And so, I mean, they'd ask you this question. It's like, no. I mean, yes. Like, they're like, do you ever think about it? And it's like, well, not like really. Not, I'm not thinking I'm going to kill myself. But it's like whenever I see a movie, I'm like thinking about suicide, aren't I? Like if someone's killing themselves. And so I'm like, yeah, but no. And they're like, do you mean no as in like you don't seriously contemplate doing it? And I'm like, yeah, that's what I mean by no. <laughs> I mean by yes, it's like suicide has entered my brain as a conceptual thought. Wow, this, this, too much, too much pontificating, Simon. Let's carry on. 
On June the 30th, 1962, 66-year-old Nina Nichols was meant to go to her sister's house for a nice dinner with family, but she never showed up. Getting worried, Nina's sister had her husband called the superintendent to Nina's apartment building at 1940 Commonwealth Avenue, asking if he could check on her. Heading up to the apartment on the fourth floor, the super let himself in and was met with a terrible sight. Nina was lying on her bedroom floor, one of her stockings wrapped around her throat once more in a granny knot. Her housecoat was pulled up so she was exposed from the waist down, and she'd been sexually assaulted. The police were called. They examined the scene, and once again, they determined that it was a homicide. Are these superintendents a normal thing? Because I always see them in movies. Like, Americans, this is directed to you. Because I've never lived in a building where there's a superintendent. I have, like, a parking spot in a building which is next to mine. And it's a much larger building than mine. And they have, like, uh, people at the door. Like, so you go in, and it's like, I rent the parking spot because there's no parking in my building. And it's like, you go in, and there's always people there. And they're collecting packages. And like this sort of stuff, and they like organize the building. And I'm like, this is amazing. I want this, but there's like maybe 10 apartments in my building. So it's not like there's no reason to have this, but there's maybe a hundred in this one. And it's like just people to collect your parcels and stuff. It's amazing. But what does a superintendent do? And why would you have this? It's not like a doorman. So you don't have that benefit, isn't it? it? I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm on so many tangents today. Matt's scripts have a tendency for me to jump off on tangents. I'm not sure why. No, it's not a bad thing, Matt. Thank you. I mean, maybe the audience listening like something is a bad thing. <laughs> it's a bad thing. Helen Blake was next, and it was the first killing that took place outside of Boston, this time in the city of Lynn. When the 65-year-old wasn't seen all that weekend, it made her neighbors, who lived at 73 Newhall Street, nervous and worried. It wasn't until July the 2nd that they went to check on her. Borrowing the key from the superintendent, they made their way into the room and opened the door, only to be met with a grisly sight. She was found face down on her bed, strangled with a stocking, tied with a granny knot, and with her pajamas pushed up over her shoulders. I feel that... Sorry, I know we're going on another tangent. I wouldn't like someone to have the key to my building. Like, no one in my apartment has a key to my apartment. Like, in my in my apartment block. I don't know. Ooh, that's a good point. Maybe I should give spare keys to someone. But I have, I have like, a wife and kids. So it's like, you know, someone else is going to have a key. But, like, if I live by myself, I guess I would give someone a key just in case I got, got locked out or something. But it would be, like, a friend. It wouldn't be just my random neighbors who are just going to, like, poke into my apartment. Although I guess... No, most people do. They'd give like, I remember when I was a kid, the neighbors, I think, had a spare key. Did they? Or maybe they didn't. I don't remember. Let's move on. She was found face down on a bed, strangled with a stocking tied in a granny knot and with the pajamas pushed up over her shoulders. The police were called and upon examining the body and scene, they made two conclusions. The first was that Helen had been killed on June the 30th, the same day as Nina. The second was that the ends of her bra were tied under her chin into a floppy bow. Looking back at the crime scenes, this seemed to be a staple of the killer since Anna's bathrobe tie and Nina's stockings had been tied in a similar fashion. Isn't this just how people who don't know how to tie knots would tie a knot? Like, you'd tie a bow because it's like that's what you know how to do from tying your shoes. I feel like that's, I don't know how to tie any fancy knots. And I used to sail and then you'd have to do like all of these like, yeah, you do like a bowling knot and all of this shit, which I've totally forgotten how to do. But don't most people not, most people don't know how to tie knots, right? They just do like, that's a granny knot or like a bow because those are the only knots people know. The apartment was in shambles as well, and it seemed like the killer wanted the scene to look like a robbery gone wrong. According to journalists Jean-Marie Cole and Loretta McLaughlin, quote, Some drawers were pulled out of a desk and a bureau. Others are removed completely and set on the floor. Helen's watches have all been examined and placed on the bureau. Her jewelry boxes have been opened and are on the floor. Her pocketbooks have been gone through. Even the sugar bowl and teapot have been looked into. Are they looking for something? I feel like they're looking for cash. Like, looking in, like, a sugar bowl and stuff, that feels like some place people would keep cash. Like, I have a little, like, place in my apartment where I keep, like, spare cash and stuff. And it's sort of hidden, but not really. It's the sort of exact, if someone was, like, going through my apartment, it's exactly the sort of place they'd look if they were robbing me. <laughs> 
Keep those ladies in mind. We'll be back to them shortly. After the killer went quiet for over a month, no attacks were reported and no women were found strangled. That is, until August the 22nd, 1962. On that day, at 7 Grove Street in the West End of Boston, another body was discovered. This was 75-year-old Ida Erger. She was found on the living room floor of her fifth-floor apartment. A pillowcase was tied in a granny knot around her neck, but the investigation revealed that she'd been strangled manually. Given the state of the body, it was determined that she'd been dead for several days, putting the time of death at August 19th. Several days later, on the afternoon of August 30th, 1962, victim number five was found. 67-year-old Jane Sullivan was discovered in her first-floor apartment in the Boston neighborhood of Dorchester. She lived just across town from the previous victim, and much like most of the previously deceased, she had been strangled with her own stockings. Like the previous victims, the stockings were still around her neck in, you guessed it, a cranny knot. It was determined that she'd been dead since the 21st, leaving her to rot in her home, sight unseen, for nine whole days. There was one major difference from the other victims up until this point, though. She had been posed. When she was found, Jane was left in a kneeling position in a bathtub, her face and forearms in six inches of water. Why the killer had done this is not known, but it is quite disturbing. It sounds like an escalation, right? Like, he's killed this way, he's killed that way. He's tried leaving, like, little signs for the police, but they've not been able to catch him with these little signs and, you know, uh, like, signatures, calling cards, whatever you want to call it. And so he's escalating, which seems, like, pretty standard behavior for murderers. That's five women in the span of two months, all strangled. The police seemingly had no clue where to start investigating their deaths. They still didn't have a suspect, and the women of Boston were scared. The police were in overdrive, trying to figure out the source of all these deaths, all while trying to keep the public as safe as they could. <laughs> the source of all these deaths, so they're looking for a murderer. With at least two of the murders happening on the same day, the police set up an emergency hotline for women to contact them should they see any suspicious characters. Fun facts, the hotline would be a precursor to 911, which wasn't established until 1968. Yeah, I was thinking, wait, doesn't that exist? It's called 911. It's like you see a suspicious person who could be a murderer, you call the police. I didn't realize 911 was established in 1968. We have 999 in the UK. And I wonder when that was established, because it feels like surely you'd take that good idea, America. 1937? Yeah, why wouldn't you get, like, it seems very sensible to have a, a number for the police. In Europe, it's 112. And here in Czech, it's very interesting. They have different numbers for different services. It's 158 for the police, 155 for an ambulance, and 159? for the fire brigade maybe i'm not sure what the fire brigade is i know the 158 for the police because the eight looks like handcuffs that's the trick everyone uses to remember it and then i think the five because it looks like a wheelchair is how you remember the the but i don't remember what the police trick is remember uh, the fire brigade trick is oh one one eight nine 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 this isn't important the public was on edge the women of boston understandably more so they were encouraged by the police not to talk to any strangers not to let strangers into their homes and to keep the doors locked at all times hell people who didn't have deadbolts on their doors had them installed and some had new locks put on their doors just to be safe most women even started carrying around extra protection for when they were walking home alone or should they be attacked in their homes keeping things like pepper spray tear gas guns or hat pins on their person for self-defense it seems like a very good idea it seems like good advice anyway for living in a city carry some pepper spray my wife carries pepper spray around so like why wouldn't you it's a little canister just keep it ready 
For some, though, the threat of a lady killer loose in the city was too much, and a number of women simply packed up and moved out of the area for their own safety. The scariest part? The police were working under the suspicion that given that no forced entry was detected at any of the scenes, that the slain women knew their attacker. They knew him well enough to simply unlock their doors and let the monster into their home, uh, where they were murdered and defiled. The police did everything they could, with Police Commissioner Edmund McNamara assigning every available cop to the murders and arranging for dozens of detectives to attend an FBI seminar on sex crimes. Regardless, the police had no real leads on the identity of the killer, and the hotline was backfiring in a major way. Women were calling in for every little infraction, reporting any and all men who simply looked at them in a way that they didn't like or approached them on a whim. They wouldn't even let police near them, conducting all interviews through the safety of a deadbolted door. Countless men were interviewed, and countless men were let go. Whether they were caught loitering, peeping, being drunk and disorderly, or a litany of other reasons, the women in the neighborhoods all saw them as a potential killer, and they were all dragged away under suspicion and questioned until their innocence was proven. Some even called the police out of spite. One example includes a woman who called the police on her ex-husband in order to get him thrown in jail, knowing full well he was innocent, wanting nothing more than to see him suffer. I understand that you might not like the jerk's actions, but calling the popo is a bit extreme. Yes, I feel like that's going to be, you're obstructing justice, you're wasting police time, especially when they're out looking for a murder. I hope you got a little time in jail yourself for that one, to be honest. Let me interrupt today's episode to tell you about our fantastic sponsor today, and that would be Shopify. You hear that sound? That's the sound of a sale that you're missing out on because you're not selling on Shopify. Yes, the silence was intentional. What does it sound like to sell with Shopify? Wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. That's better, isn't it? Start selling with Shopify today. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Look, whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO-ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. And what's nice there is like you can start in one place, like when you're really small, and then you might be thinking, oh, no, at some point I've got to switch over to some big boy sales system. And it's like, no, you don't with Shopify. You don't at all, which is amazing. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel, so whether you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system or offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one commerce e-commerce platform, you are absolutely covered. Look, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, which is wild. That is a huge amount of business. And Shopify is truly global force, powering Allbirds, Rothies, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 170 countries. How many countries are there? I feel like that's most of them, right? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash casual, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash casual to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash casual. And now back to today's episode. A womanly touch. When it comes to the press, they weren't helping much either, and their coverage of the murders caused panic to spread like wildfire. The Boston Globe was perhaps one of the worst offenders, reporting on the monstrous killer who unleashed, as they put it, a maniacal spree of violence that has gripped in terror thousands of greater Boston women who live alone. Many of the other papers did their best to try and keep the populace calm. The Boston Herald did their best to tell the ladies of Boston that the chances of them getting targeted by the killer were almost impossible, while the Boston Advertiser attempted to reach out to the murderer. They wrote and published a message on their front page, urging the killer to stop and reach out to the paper itself for help that they so clearly needed. None of this actually happened, but they get props from me for the effort. Yeah, it's a lot better than the Boston Globe. Uh, but the reality is, it's like, yeah, okay, you can tell people, oh, the chances of that happening are infinitesimal. Yeah, but it's people still are afraid, and it's going to happen to someone. It's like winning the lottery, but the opposite. 
However, when talking about the Boston Strangler case and the press, there's no way to talk about it without speaking about two very important women, journalists Jean Cole and Loretta McLaughlin. First, a note. At the time, the police were all over the case, but one thing was up for debate within the department. The uncertainty, or perhaps the unwillingness to accept, that all the killings, up until that point, were done by a single murderer. Nothing was definitive and nothing was announced, resulting in the public being mostly kept in the dark and unable to protect themselves. That is, until two women with good heads on their shoulders forced the police to come clean. Jean Marie Cole was born on May 13, 1926, in Sidewood, Massachusetts. The second of six children, she graduated from Sidewood High School in 1944 and was shortly after accepted into the United States Army Nurse Corps at Quincy City Hospital, mostly because she didn't have much choice at the time. There were many opportunities for women back in the day, and nursing was one of the biggest viable options. Jean didn't want to become a nurse, though. She wanted to be a reporter, and she dove headlong into it, accepting a position as a copy boy in 1944 at the Boston American Record, a tabloid newspaper. Apparently, she had a huge knack for it, and went from being an apprentice reporter to getting her first byline within the span of only a few months. God damn, good for you! She kept on busting her butt as the years rolled by, working as an undercover reporter during the 1950s, investigating nursing homes in the Boston area, and writing a series of articles on the terrible conditions. For these articles and her phenomenal work ethic, she was named Woman of the Year in 1953 by the New England Women's Press Association and Boston Newspapermen's Benevolent Association awarded her its Press Association Award in 1963. While working at the record, Jean made the acquaintance of Loretta McLaughlin. Born Loretta McDermott in 1928 in Woburn, Massachusetts, she was one of four children. Moving to South Boston when she was a child, she eventually graduated from South Boston High School before attending Boston University on an academic scholarship. After graduating with a bachelor's degree in journalism in 1949, her career started the Boston Record in the 1950s. When the killings were at their height, Loretta decided to take a look at the case, examining all the information that they were afforded, and she came to a dark conclusion. This was certainly the work of a single murderer. She went right to their editor with the idea, stating they needed to warn the public, they needed to write an editorial on this and get the information out there. But since the past was the worst, her editor wasn't interested in her ideas. Silly women with their outlandish ideas, thinking they could crack a case like this, how could they think such a thing? <laughs> I, like, Mad Men is one of my biggest references for um, sexism. It's like, you look at Mad Men, you're like, holy shit, and that was the 1960s. That was like when my grandparents were working. And I always think about that. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> this is the, like, that's my grandparents' prime working age was the 1960s when Mad Men was around. And I just think like, but that was the 60s. Before that, it was even worse. <laughs> McCoughlin recounted decades later, an editor disputed the worth of a series on the four dead women, noting they were nobodies. That was it exactly. I felt, why should anyone murder four obscure women? That was what made them so interesting sisters in anonymity, like all of us. So, she was dismissed for her ideas until more bodies were discovered. On December 5, 1962, four months after the last victim was found, the body of Sophie Clark was discovered at 315 Huntington Avenue in the neighborhood of Back Bay in Boston. Now, there are four things of note here. The first is the age of the victim. All the victims up until this point were on the older side, the youngest being 55, the oldest 85. This time, the victim was only 20 years old, a nursing student. Second is that she was African-American, unlike the other victims who were all Caucasian women. The third thing is that she didn't live alone like the other victims did. She had been living with two roommates for some time, and fourth, unlike all the previous crime scenes, the killer had left behind... Oh, God. He wrote a sample of his enjoyment. Oh, dude. Not right. 
Now, of course, DNA testing wasn't even remotely conceivable back in those days, so while they now had a new clue as to the identity of their killer, they couldn't really do much with it. And with the police still no closer to nailing the scumbag, he struck again. He started the month with a murder and ended it in cut. Why would they think this was related? Like, it seems... Was the... Did he use the granny knot and stuff? Because it seems like I wouldn't... Why would you think these are together? The person's young. They're of a different ethnicity. It seems like... I wouldn't necessarily tie these together. He started the month with a murder and ended it in kind because on December the 31st, 1962, another body was found. 23-year-old Patricia Bissett was found in her home at 515 Park Drive in Back Bay, the exact same neighborhood as the last victim. She was found in bed, tucked in with her covers coming up to her chin. When they were pulled back, the stockings and white blouse that were used to kill her were still around her neck, knotted tightly with the same style of granny knot. Okay, there you go. But these this does seem like a different a different mo slightly different was the granny knots tied around the neck like public knowledge because then you could think maybe it's a copycat after these two newest killings gene and loretta were finally listened to and assigned the case together they wrote an article leaning into the idea that all of these deaths were the work of one demented madman loose on their streets and on january the 9th 1963 their article was published on the front page with the headline two girl reporters analyze strangler <laughs> two girl Re why do you have to write a sacred i know it's the 60s <laughs> That's why, but it's so weird. What followed was twofold. The first result was about 29 more articles analyzing the killer and reconstructing the crimes in their entirety, releasing details from each murder that the police had held back from the public. They made pretty much everything known through their articles, including the names and ages of the victims, their time and causes of death, and where their bodies were found, what they were wearing, when they were killed, and the probability of sexual assault. And throughout every article, the pair stayed convinced that the culprit for these murders had to be a single intelligent psychopath with a history of sexually deviant behavior. He also seemed to have a preference, as all the women he targeted were single, orderly, well-groomed, self-sufficient, and respectable. Yeah, but they were also of different ethnicities and different ages, which feels like more specific than someone just being orderly and respectable. The second result was the police response, along with that of other locals, including other papers. To say they reacted negatively would be a laughable understatement. The authorities were livid at the amount of detail that was revealed in the initial article and publicly denounced the notion that a single murderer was to blame for this mayhem. The fact that these two journalists, these two women, had the nerve, the audacity, the unmitigated gall to question and embarrass the police by doing an objectively better job than them was unthinkable. Yo, police, if you don't want information out there, don't release the information this was probably well before like freedom of information and stuff right it's like if you don't want people knowing about stuff from crimes don't release it to the public easy the misogyny was strong back in the 1960s and sadly gene and loretta caught quite the backlash from it including a tidal wave of creepy letters and threatening phone calls i want to say that the past was truly the worst and it definitely was but sadly i think we all know this type of toxic behavior is still quite real today which is truly sad yeah immediately i was like i was i was about to be like oh the past was the worst though i realized this absolutely still happens Regardless of the backlash, though, no matter how much the police tried to suppress the information, the articles did their job, informing the public of what they had a right to know. And it was because of these works that the killer behind this streak was given the moniker The Boston Strangler. The killings continue. Even with the public more aware and more paranoid than ever, it didn't stop the deaths from continuing to pile up. 
Beverly Sammons was the next victim. The 23-year-old Boston University grad student was killed in her apartment at 4 University Road in Lawrence, Massachusetts on March 6, 1963, though her body wasn't found until two days later. Her fiancé hadn't heard from her, so he went to check on her. When entering her apartment, he found her on the pull-out couch. Now, this is where things start to stray from the previous M.O. For clarification, stockings were found around her neck, tied in a granny knot just like the other victims, and her wrists were tied with a sequin-studded silk scarf. However, the stockings weren't what killed her. They were simply there as set dressing. Beverly had been viciously attacked as the killer made his way inside, and she had been stabbed a total of 22 times with her body being staged afterward to resemble the others. Now, while this would raise suspicion of this being a copycat killing, it was later verified that this was indeed done by the same monster. Next was Evelyn Corbin. She was found in her Salem apartment at 224 Lafayette Street on September 8, 1963. In line with the earlier victims, she was a woman later in her years of 58, and she too was strangled with her own stockings. Unlike the other victims, though, she had her underwear stuffed into her mouth and another stocking tied to her ankle. The killing method had continued to remain fairly constant, but nearly every crime scene had its own unique little differences. Was this to throw off the investigators, or did the demon simply have a flair for the theatrical? On November 23, 1963, not even 24 hours after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, another murder took place. 23-year-old Joan Graff was in her apartment at 54 Essex Street in Lawrence, Massachusetts, minding her own business when death came for her. After being sexually assaulted, she was strangled with her own stockings. In another unique bit of evidence, when she was found stockings still around her throat, the police also found noticeable bite marks on her left breast. The strangler seemed to be getting more vicious, though his reign of terror was soon to come to an end. The final victim was the youngest. This was Mary Sullivan, a girl of only 19. It was January the 4th, 1964. A new year had come, and it was over a month since the last victim was found. Mary lived in an apartment at 44A Charles Street in Beacon Hill in Boston. She had recently moved in there with two roommates who had lived happily together for some time, and it was those two roommates who found her. That day, they returned to the apartment and discovered her on the bed, splayed out stockings around her neck, along with a pink silk scarf tied in a big bow. These calling cards confirmed that it was the work of the strangler, bringing the body count up to 11, and the police still had no clue as to who he was. Uh, can these really confirm it being the same person? We mentioned copycats earlier, and I feel that by this point, the reporters have put the information out. It can be just someone copying the MO. It's not like there's some secret thing. You know, Often they'll leave out a detail from the press so they really know if it's the actual murderer or a copycat. It got to the point where Edward William Brooke III, the assistant attorney general at the time, created a major task force known to many as the Strangler Bureau, promising to use every technique available to them in order to catch the monster. And yet they simply couldn't find him. Luckily, at the exact same time that the Boston Strangler case was going on, another series of crimes were taking place all across Boston. And it was this case which blew the whole investigation open. Just before we continue today's video, I want to give a big thank you to today's sponsor, which is Quince. Look, summer is just ending. It's uh, entering autumn, as you Americans might call it. Fall. And look, I like wearing the t-shirts in the summer. It's nice knowing to wear like sweaters and jackets and all that stuff. But you can look forward to it a little bit more thanks to Quince because they have a fantastic selection of sweaters, jackets and loungewear. It's all available at Quince, so you can get ready for the fall. Quince creates timeless classics that never go out of style. You'll have them in your closet forever. They've got all the must-haves, like Mongolian cashmere crewneck sweaters. Is that a must-have? That sounds like an extremely luxurious and nice item. But what, it's only $59? Or from $59? Whatever that is, that's a good deal for, like, cashmere? Oh my god. 
suede bomber jackets, European linen shirts, and here's the kicker: all Quince items are priced 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the costs of the middleman and passes the savings on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes, which is fantastic. Check out all the styles at Quince today. Go to Quince Q U I N C E dot com slash casual for free shipping and 365 day returns on your order. Whoa, that's an entire year. This isn't in the copy. I'm genuinely I'm supposed to read this verbatim. I'm genuinely very surprised by that. I think like a month is good. 365 days? And again, that's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash casual and get free shipping and 365 days return. Quince.com slash casual. And now back to today's episode. DeSalvo. Boston was red hot, burning with fear over the Boston Strangler. However, another string of crimes had begun two years before in the Cambridge, Massachusetts area, where multiple women fell victim to sexual attacks. When interviewed, the women would all describe him the same way. A white man, in his late twenties, decently attractive with a silver tongue to boot. He would go door to door, ready and waiting for the beautiful occupants to answer their doorbell. If it was a man who answered, he would simply apologize and move on. But if it was a young woman... But he would get to work. Isn't this gonna? Isn't he gonna run into a problem when everyone's like super paranoid and not opening their doors? Or is it just gonna be like people still open their doors? They just do. He would introduce himself as a talent scout from a modeling agency looking for new models, and what happened next depended solely on their answer. If they said no, he simply accepted it and went on his way, leaving the fortunate women unmolested. If they said yes and wished to continue talks, he smiled and said he'd need to come in and take their measurements. Excited for this new opportunity, the women would allow him inside their home where he would take out his measuring tape. Um, dude, at this point, be like, can I see some like accreditation? You got a website? You got a business card? Or are you just going to get that tape out and measure my body? That's way too intimate, dude. No. Using this as an excuse to get close and handsy, he would feel them up all over, leaving them feeling used and violated. Like many infamous criminals, this serial offender was given a nickname by the media, The Measuring Man. Thankfully, this little wank bag was actually caught in March 1960 while breaking into a woman's house. Oh, I'm sorry, this is a different dude, isn't it? It's a different guy. He fully admitted to being The Measuring Man and was sentenced to 18 months in jail, served 11, and was released for good behavior in 1962. This man's name was Albert DeSalvo. Born on September 3, 1931, in Chelsea, Massachusetts, Albert was subjected to the darkness of this world and was for the word go. His casual criminal is classic, as his father, Frank DeSalvo, was a violent alcoholic who would make their lives a living misery. He'd beat his wife, Charlotte, would make the children watch, and even went so far as to not only bend her fingers all the way back until they actually broke, but he made a point to knock out every last one of her teeth. And of course he was a cheater as well, and he wasn't even remotely ashamed of it, bringing home prostitutes regularly and making his wife and children sit and watch as he had his way. You are a mega piece of sh**, my dude. What the f***? Rule number two, don't f*** up your kids. We have talked about this at length. What the f***? Surprise, surprise, all this negativity and instability at home didn't a good person make. When he was younger, DeSalvo had already begun torturing animals. Oh, here we go. Ting, ding, ding. Serial killer checkbox. 
Checking off a box on our serial killer checklist. Yes, same page. Add in the fact that he had started shoplifting and stealing as he got older, and yes, it isn't looking too good for him. It was November 1943 when he was arrested for the first time for battery and robbery, all at the tender age of 12. God damn, dude. Your life is not going to work out well. A month later, he'd be sent to the Lyman School for Boys, a disciplinary boarding school. Less than a year later, he'd be paroled, only to be sentenced there again in 1946 after stealing a car. After the second release, he went into the army, serving two stints as a military police sergeant with the 2nd Squadron 14th Armoured Cavalry Regiment before being honorably discharged both times. What? He became a military policeman? They were like, yeah, look at that guy's criminal record. Let's make him a military policeman. How about, I'm sure he could fine going to the regular military, but how about not making him the police part of the regular military? That, of course, leads us to find DeSalvo under arrest for the Measuring Man incidents, for which he served time less than a year. He was also given another shot at freedom after he clearly should have gone down for much longer. Did that stop him? Of course not. Um, I get that the guy... <laughs> much longer? I get that the guy's a pervert and a weirdo. Like, just going into women's homes and, like, measuring them. But much more than a year? Feels a bit... <laughs> Am I just being unreasonable? <laughs> but like, we've had some truly horrible people on this podcast who have got away with a lot more. But he simply went back to his weirdo ways, going from house to house, women to women, getting his rocks off in the creepiest way possible. Oh, Matt. Oh, Matt, Matt, Matt. That is not the creepiest way possible. It's creepy. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to defend the weirdo measuring man. I'm just saying this is the casual criminalist. We've had Pedro Lopez feature on this show. He murdered 200 children. It's not the creepiest thing. It's extremely creepy. It's really weird. Don't go into people's houses and measure their breasts. But like, the creepiest ever way possible? Come on, dude. No shot. Making his way through Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, DeSalvo broke into 400 homes and sexually assaulted over 300 women, almost always clad in green pants. Wait. Oh, okay. It gets. Okay, sorry. I'm sorry. Now he's breaking into homes and sexually assaulting people. That's obviously a lot worse than, like, hello there. I'm from a modeling agency. Let me measure your body. <laughs> it's obviously a different thing. I apologize. Let's move on. The fashion choice earned him another nickname, The Green Man. All the while this scumbag was loose, the police weren't able to catch him, and they weren't any closer to closing the Boston Strangler case either. Then, on October 27, 1947, it all came tumbling down. That day, the police were called to a house in East Cambridge. The caller was a woman, and she had a story to tell. Earlier, she'd let a man inside her home, a man dressed as a detective with the police. Upon entering, he wasted no time in pouncing on her, tying her to the bed, and sexually assaulting her. His business done, he simply cleaned himself up, turned to her and said, I'm sorry, and exited the house, as if apologizing would make it all better. Going off the description of the man, the police knew exactly who to look for, and DeSalvo was arrested on November 3, 1964, on charges of assault, burglary, and sexual assault. When asked about why he committed this series of assaults, DeSalvo said the following, I'm not good-looking. I'm not educated, but I was able to put something over on high-class people, they were all college kids, and I never had anything in my life and I outsmarted them. What? You outsmarted them? You broke into their homes. <laughs> it's not like you're playing on an even field. Now, at the time, DeSalvo wasn't linked to the Boston Strangler in the slightest. He wasn't even on the list of suspects. He pleaded not guilty to the charges laid against him and was released on $8,000 bail. That's a lot of money in today's money, isn't it? Like, multiply by 10 from the 60s to here, because that's what I learned from Mad Men. That's like 80 grand. Where's he getting 80 grand from? 
This didn't last long, though, as this picture was in all the papers and several more women came forth, saying that he was the one who broke in and violated them, leading to him being arrested again on November the 5th, bro. If you're like, if you're in sitting and then you get that bail, like the 80 grand bail equivalent in today's money, and you're like seeing your picture in the paper, you're like, uh oh, <laughs> I guess I'm not getting that 80 grand back because it's time to flee to Lebanon. He likely would have denied anything until the end if his wife, Ermgard de Salvo, hadn't told him to confess it all. That's right, this creep had a wife as well as two children at home waiting for him, and yet he went out and did this to so many women. Her words changed his mind, and he confessed all the break-ins and assaults, being transferred from jail to Bridgewater State Hospital after being diagnosed as sociopathic with schizoid features and depressive tendencies. Being judged incompetent to stand trial, he was sentenced to a psychiatric facility on the 4th of February 1965 for the foreseeable future. After that, things probably should have stayed in limbo until new details came to light. Confession and End So, I know what all of you must be thinking. Well, Matt, you've spoken of killings, and you've spoken of DeSalvo, so how do they tie together? I mean, I think the obvious thing is it's like there's going to be some evidence that links this guy to the Boston Strangler, and the police are going to jump on it, and then, or there's the confession something, even though he wasn't deemed fit to stand trial, so let's see where this goes. That's my prediction. Like, they're going to be linked incorrectly. Or maybe incorrectly, or who knows. Well, let's get that sorted out right now. Remind me how it was that Jean and Loretta described their view on the killer again. Ah, yes, an intelligent psychopath with a history of sexually deviant behavior. Sound familiar? Well, yes, it does. Well, first off, let's talk about one F. Lee Bailey. Being licensed in Massachusetts and Florida, Bailey was a well-known defense lawyer, known for defending such clients like Patty Hearst, Dr. Sam Shepard, and Ernest Medina, along with being a member of the Dream Team part of the defense team that would get O.J. Simpson off the hook for murder. Before that, though, he rose to prominence, being the defense lawyer attached to Albert DeSalvo. In late 1965, Bailey received a call from prison, one that he couldn't have possibly predicted. It was from George Nasser, a friend and fellow inmate of DeSalvo. Nasser made the claim that DeSalvo had confessed that he was not only responsible for all the sexual assaults that he was faced with, but he was in fact the Boston Strangler. Okay, I kind of thought we'd go like the police interrogation route, but he just seems to be admitting it to someone in prison or in the psychiatric hospital, which doesn't he doesn't sound like the most reliable person, you know, being in a psychiatric hospital and all. It took no time for Bailey to set up a meeting with DeSalvo. Speaking plainly about it, DeSalvo confessed once again to all the murders, taking credit for being the mad strangler of Boston. And to seal the deal even more, the confession was so clear and detailed that it seemed almost impossible that he wasn't the killer. He knew which victim was which when photos were shown that hadn't been released to the public. Oh, okay. Well, there we go. That's fairly compelling, isn't it? He could even identify the color of their furniture. He confessed to Bailey. He confessed to physician William Joseph Bryan while under hypnosis. And he confessed to... <laughs> Yeah, that matters. And he confessed to Assistant Attorney General John Bottomley while being interviewed. Three strikes. You're out, I suppose. This does sound very compelling, and one thing I'd be tempted to think is, well, someone, he could be taking the rap for someone else who did this. But then you've got the thing where he's showing the photographs, and no matter how much you describe someone to someone else, or maybe you could show them the photo, but then how would they do that in prison? The identify, identifying the people seems very compelling to me. The other stuff, like the confession and the hypnosis, it's like, well, you know, maybe not. And on top of that, not only did he confess to the 11 murders known to the police, but also to two more. 85-year-old Mary Mullen was the first unknown victim identified, and within the timeline, the second overall victim. He attacked her at 1435 Commonwealth Avenue in Boston on June the 28th, 1962, but he never got to finish the job. How would you remember that? How would you remember the exact address and date when you've, you know, you've killed several people? 
allegedly. Before he could kill her himself, the fear and stress of the attack caused old Mary to have a fatal heart attack, killing her there and then. The other women he confessed to killing were 69-year-old Mary Brown on March 6, 1963. This would make Mary the ninth victim of the group, being killed between the attacks on Patricia Bassett and Beverly Sammons. Much like the other victims, she was strangled in a home at 319 Park Street in Lawrence, though the killer also made sure to stab her numerous times beforehand for good measure. So, chain him up and throw away the key, right? It's clearly him. Well, there's a bit of a problem. There was no actual physical evidence against DeSalvo. Nothing definitive, nothing concrete, and in the end, the confession was simply that. Words. The one thing they had was a chance at identification. The Strangler had one surviving victim, a woman by the name of Gertrude Gruen. She had been attacked in her apartment, but she had put up enough of a fight to drive him away. She was brought in and had time to see DeSalvo. And she said it wasn't him. He wasn't the man who attacked her. Soon enough, on the 30th of June 1966, Salvo was found mentally competent to stand trial, but for his crimes as the Green Man, not as the Boston Strangler. Bailey did everything in his power to get his confession submitted to his evidence, more specifically evidence of DeSalvo's insanity. He wanted the whole case to end with DeSalvo being found mentally unsound and locked away in hospital for study. But the courts would hear none of it. The judge saw the confession as having no bearing on the actual case at hand, and he threw it out, ruling it inadmissible. The trial continued, regardless of Bailey's objections, and eventually he settled on a plea bargain. DeSalvo would be found guilty and convicted of ten counts of rape and armed robbery, and in exchange, death penalty would be off the table, with the possibility of an eventual insanity verdict. Bailey was incensed as it, and he made it known. Quote, My goal was to see the strangler wind up in hospital where doctors could try and find out what made him kill. Society is deprived of a study that might help deter other mass killers who lived among us, waiting for the trigger to go off inside them. The quote ends. DeSalvo was sentenced to life imprisonment on the 18th of January 1967 and was initially housed at the Bridgewater State Hospital, though that wouldn't last for long. A month later, in February 1967, he left a note on his bunk for the superintendent at the hospital, stating that he wanted to focus on his life situation and the conditions at the hospital. With that, he and two other inmates escaped the institution, resulting in a large-scale manhunt. Apparently, the whole thing was a bit much for DeSalvo, though, as he reached out to his lawyer shortly after to turn himself in. He was found and caught the next day at a clothing store in Lynn, and because of his escape, he was transferred to a maximum security prison. Whoops, a daisy. <laughs> that was the Massachusetts Correctional Institution, Cedar Junction, formerly known as Warpole. Several years passed with him being locked away, and not much was heard of Albert DeSalvo. He remained in correspondence with Bailey the whole time he was in prison, and during that time, he actually recanted his confession. That's right. After all that time, DeSalvo took it all back. He said he wasn't the strangler, no matter how detailed and accurate the confession was. And in the end, it was for all for naught anyway. Charges were never laid against DeSanto in regard to the Strangler case, and if he was the killer, he took it to the grave. What? How did he know about the faces then? On November the 25th, 1973, the body of Albert DeSalvo was found in the prison infirmary. He was stabbed to death, only 42 years old, and it simply stagnated from there. DeSalvo was dead. His killer or killers would ever be caught or identified, and since that day, no one has been brought up on the charges of the murders of the Boston Strangler. In essence, the case has truly never been solved. Or has it? Did he actually do it? So, the biggest remaining questions are this. Was Albert DeSalvo the Boston Strangler? Was the case solved despite there being no charge or trial? And here is where we'll break down a couple of theories, and then we'll double back to DeSalvo, and we'll see which one lines up the best, especially with the development that came about 10 years ago. Oh, okay then, are we talking some DNA? Is some DNA happening? I think it will be, right? 10 years ago? That sounds about right. 
The first alternate theory brings us back to a name mentioned a little earlier, that of George Nasser. Yes, the friend and cellmate that DeSavo supposedly confided and confessed to. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't remember who this was. First off, he was already a murderer. That much is known. In 1948, he was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Dominic Kermill. But that wouldn't last long as he was paroled in 1961. And sadly, it was stupid in this case, as Nasser didn't even last four years on the outside before he murdered Irvin Hilton, the owner of a Texaco station in Andover, Massachusetts, in 1965. This time he was sentenced to death, but it was soon commuted to life imprisonment, during which time he became acquainted with DeSalvo. So, why do we bring him up now? Simple and for several reasons. First off, Nasser was free as a bird when the killing started and was free when they ended, only going to prison after the final victim was found. Furthermore, when the surviving victims of the Strangler were brought in to look at the suspects, they didn't identify DeSalvo, but they did finger Nasser as their attacker. The theory goes that Nasser was, in fact, the Boston Strangler, and the two of them conspired to use the confession, coached all the way through by Nasser, to split the $10,000 in reward money. So, can we see why this doesn't work? All this amounts to is theory and coincidence. Yes, it's all just circumstantial stuff, really, and some that doesn't even add up, with an end motive that clearly wouldn't have actually worked. Aside from being a murderer in his own right, Nasser had nothing that connected him to the victims. There was no evidence that he was in the area at the time of the spree, and his two past victims were male, plus they were shot quite different from lying his way into homes and strangling ladies with their stockings. And the whole idea of splitting the reward is nothing but conjecture and conspiracy. Theory number two, that the killings attributed by the Boston Strangler were actually perpetrated not by one, but by multiple killers. Yeah, I'm like not against that. The MOs were really different. The victim profiles were really different. From a certain angle, it makes sense. Most serial killers of a certain age and group they target, while the Strangler targeted women of any age range, the oldest being 85, the youngest 19. Many experts and those who observed DeSalvo agree that DeSalvo wasn't the killer and that multiple killers were a distinct possibility. Dr. Ames Roby, medical director at Bridgewater State Hospital, believed that DeSalvo simply confessed because he wanted the notoriety and he was a very clever, very smooth, compulsive confessor who desperately needs to be recognized. Former FBI profiler Robert Ressler, who I've spoken of before, went on record as saying, You're putting together so many different patterns regarding the Boston Strangler murders that it's inconceivable behaviorably that these all could fit one individual. Yeah, I agree with Ressler. This seems like it's more than one person. However, much like the NASA idea, that's all it is. It's just an idea. Yeah, but this one feels more compelling than the NASA idea, doesn't it? While it could be the work of multiple killers, there's no real evidence to fully support it. And the argument that many of the killings could simply be copycat killings after the details were released, while well, the same argument could be made in favor of it simply being one murderer using the same MO. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Although the victim profiles were so different. And now, oh, we return to DeSalvo. While no charges were filed, and while still to this day the case is still technically unsolved, the general consensus is that Albert DeSalvo, in addition to being the measuring man and the green man, was also the Boston Strangler. The confessions were so detailed, so precise, that it seems impossible that he could have pieced them all together from the info given in the articles that came out from the case. Help. He even got a detail about a survivor's apartment, the color of a piece of furniture that the survivor herself got wrong. But even then, so many still had doubts, and to this day, there are still those who aren't certain of his guilt. Hell, the family of the final victim, Mary Sullivan, campaigned for years that they didn't believe for a moment that Albert DeSalvo was the one who killed Mary. And then 2013 came around. I get the feeling we're about to get some DNA evidence, or whatever. But my feeling is he didn't do it. I don't think it's him. I don't think this dude did it. But then, if it was so locked down with DNA, then 
we wouldn't really be making this episode about guilty or innocent, would we? So did he? I don't, I don't think so. I think the DNA won't match if this DNA we're talking about. Yes, I can see just a glance of the next paragraph and I see the capital DNA, so let's go. By then, DNA sequencing had come a long way and it continues to advance even today. Back then, such an idea was non-existent and they had no way of testing physical evidence in that way. In July 2013, seminal fluid was taken from Mary Sullivan's body and was tested against DNA from a nephew of DeSalvo. The results were a near-perfect match! With that, the body of Albert DeSalvo was exhumed and the test was performed again. The results were quite revealing and the police would announce that Albert DeSalvo was indeed the murderer of Mary Sullivan. There could be no doubt. Or oh, holy sh- I was wrong. <laughs> to quote the then State Attorney General Martha Coakley in regard to the results and Mary's family, quote, I hope this brings some measure of finality to Mary Sullivan's family. This leaves no doubt that Albert DeSalvo was responsible for the brutal murder of Mary Sullivan and most likely that he was responsible for the horrific murders of the other women that he confessed to killing. Is it decisive proof that he was the Boston Strangler? I mean, yes, for this one case, but for all of them, who knows? Perhaps not. But it is one question solved, that he had indeed stolen a knife, that of the final victim. And that might be the best answer we can hope for. To this day, the Boston Strangler still has not been 100% identified, but after DeSalvo's capture, the police didn't find more murder victims with granny knots around their necks, a fact that speaks for itself. Okay, well, very simply, the DNA evidence comes around and my mind has changed. <laughs> it's probably him. Wrap up. And that, as we say is that, the story of the Boston Strangler remains a mystery to this day, though one not as shrouded in uncertainty as it once was. While there will always be doubters until definitive proof is brought to light, it is still generally accepted that Albert DeSalvo was in fact the killer and that he was caught before he could up his body count. While they weren't experts on the matter, Loretta McGoughlin and Jean Cole, in their determination to spread the word and keep women safe, put together the most comprehensive investigation and theories about the killer, putting the cops to utter shame. And everything they compiled, everything they pieced together, fit DeSalvo to a T. So do I believe that DeSalvo was actually the madman behind all the mayhem? Well, after looking through all the information, it's this writer's honest opinion that the strangler was most likely Albert DeSalvo, and the ruddy bastard died painfully long ago as he deserved. Yeah, I agree. DNA. Boom. Done. I mean, there could have been more victims in the profile thing, but so there's a lot of coincidences now with the murders stopping and all of this stuff and his confession and the DNA. I'm like, is this dude? Come on now. Sadly, neither Loretta nor Jean are with us any longer. Jean passed away. Well, they'd be very old. <laughs> Wouldn't they be like 100? 2015 at the age of 89. Okay, so not quite 100, but bloody close. And Loretta on November the 23rd, 2018 at the age of 90. These people had great long lives. That's not bad. Like 89 and 90? Like my grandparents lived to, I mean, a little bit older than that, but like they were old, like old, old, proper old. I think most of them were in their mid 90s. But their legacy still lives on to this day. They are still remembered and credited for their work, and it's impossible to talk about The Strangler without bringing up these incredible women. Hell, just this year, a new film about The Boston Strangler was released with Kira Knightley and Carrie Coon playing the roles of Loretta and Jean, respectively, keeping their memory alive. It's a very well-made film, one of the best serial killer films in recent memory, and I'd recommend anyone checking it out if given the chance. When was this? This sounds good. This year? Wow. Have I never heard of that? You didn't tell me the name of the movie! <laughs> As the darkness recedes from us once more, I'd like to take a moment to remember the victims, as we always do. The Strangler might be the one everyone talks about, but these women uh, were people too, simply enjoying their lives, thinking it was just another day in the neighborhood when they opened their door to a monster. Anna Slezers, 
Mary Mullen, Nina Nichols, Helen Blake, Ida Erger, Jane Sullivan, Sophie Clark, Patricia Bassett, Mary Brown, Beverly Sammons, Evelyn Corbin, Joan Graff, Mary Sullivan. May they all rest in peace, free from worry and pain, while the evil creep who stole their lives burns down in the depths of hell where he belongs. Yeah, and that's where we end today's episode. Thank you for being here. If you enjoy the show, leave a review. If you're watching on YouTube, do subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.